Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, A Healing Journey to Self-Love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Radically Loved Podcast. This is Tessa. Um, before I introduce our guest today, I do want to say right off the bat that, um, you know, warning, this might be sensitive. This might be a sensitive podcast. Um, it might include stories of neglect and abuse, uh, that might be hard to hear. So just be mindful of the company you keep and please take care of yourself. I'll definitely make sure we get some resources in the show notes. Um, if you or anyone, you know, are going through a hard time and need some support with that. So with that said, I want to warmly welcome Brittany Means to the podcast Brittany is a Chicana writer and editor who lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, she's a graduate of Iowa's MFA nonfiction writing program, and she's received several awards for her work. Um, and she's here today to talk about her life, her experience, and her memoir, which came out in October, Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways. I'm holding it up here if you are watching on YouTube. Um, and if you're listening on the podcast, all of you, welcome, welcome, welcome. Brittany, welcome. How are you today? Hi, um, I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. This is um, your story. Uh, I think so many people, I think many people can identify with. And also, I think a lot of people kind of sit back in awe and wonder, how does one survive that, especially as a young child? How does one um, break that cycle if it's possible? And um, I have a lot of personal history I could share and I've shared before, but I always think it's just, I, I think it's so interesting how given circumstances of abuse and neglect and violence, how some of us will go one direction in our life, um, repeating the cycle and over and over again, and how some of us are able to break free of that chain, that generational violence or trauma. And so your story, Brittany, to me, yeah, it's a story of poverty, it's abuse, instability in your life moving around often. Um, I mean, there's this theme of how hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's also a story of resilience and there's a lot of humor in it. Um, and so I, I just wanted to call that out and then ask you the question about, and this is a big one. <laughs> I'm going to start <laughs> off with saying, how do you think about breaking the cycle of abuse? I mean, you were certainly able to do it. Um, here you are today talking to us about that. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. I love starting with this question. Um, I think 
one of the best things that we can do to break these cycles is just be aware of them. Um, you know, it's, it's an easy thing to just say, like, don't repeat the awful things that happened to you as a kid, to your kids or to other people. Um, but it's an entirely different thing where you can actually map out in the book. I was able to trace back like the way my grandfather's father treated him and how some of that manifested in some really angry and abusive habits. And then how those habits carried on through my mom and my uncles and aunts. Um, and then how I've struggled in my life to undo them. So I think, yeah, just reflecting, like, how did people treat me? How did people treat them? And what kind of maybe reflexive and protective habits have I developed? And what kinds of things have I been telling myself to excuse those habits um, that maybe have kept you safe, but at a certain point in your life, you have to learn to let go of them and find healthier ways and, and also hold yourself to the standard. How do I wish I had been treated and how can I treat other people like that? Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I, w I would imagine that for you, it ex it's, this is most likely not a linear process and it exists on a spectrum of maybe feeling like some days you're back, back in that mindset or back in that childhood self of hurt and self-protection um, and that tools that you have as an adult or something closer to like a practice of can I practice this in a time of um, when things are calm and when I'm feeling like I have access to these tools and not not necessarily in a more heightened stressful state I don't know yeah. what do you think about that yeah I think it's like um it's not like a, a thing that you can recognize and then say, I'm going to do better. And then therefore you never go back to becoming your most like defensive self. I still have to like on a really regular basis, tell myself like you are being really anxious right now. And that's completely understandable. But the thing that you're thinking of saying, or the way you're thinking of like, dropping out of this situation to protect yourself is not healthy and it's not fair to the people around you. Like you have to sit in this difficult thing and, and that will make your relationship stronger and will help you be the kind of person you want to be. And it's really hard when you have to practice that every day. And sometimes it feels like, when will this muscle become reflexive? And I think if there are people out there who are my age or a little older or younger, um, it's important to remember how much of your life you spent learning bad habits and how much of your life you have been working on building the good ones and how much you still have left. Yeah. I always like, I love that reminder. And as a means for anything that you're healing from how many decades, like how deep is that neural pathway? Well, it took mm -hmm. you that long to develop it. So it's not to say that it's going to take you as long or longer to unlearn that habit, but it might. And just, re just give yourself some grace and time and space to, you know, take a couple steps backward. Maybe it feels like that to, to take one step forward. I think that's such yeah. a helpful reminder. Uh, the, the central theme in this, this book, one that I wanted to pull on a little bit more, what it means to be a child at the intersection of poverty, abuse, and addiction. Um, I mean, you're, you're there in your you're young 
innocent years kind of watching all of this unfold around you powerless to stop it and looking back on that childhood self I wanted to just hear you talk a little bit about the topic of being that child experiencing that poverty abuse and witnessing addiction yeah well I, I think unfortunately it's it's not really my story is not uncommon um and when you're a kid you tend to internalize a lot of things at least when I was a kid I thought like these bad things happening are somehow because of me and part of that was like a messed up religious upbringing where you internalize shame um but you you don't have the perspective or the education or really like the developmental ability to understand that there are these huge forces around you, especially in the United States. Um, there are so many kids living in poverty, so many people struggling with addictions and trying to be good to their families. Um, and just the culture around parenting, the, the idea that the way to parent a child is to constantly overpower them. And just collectively, we are a very punishing society. And I think all of these things come together to create stories like mine. And when you're a kid, you don't have that perspective. And some people grow up and keep that internalized shame and don't really understand that a lot of what I experienced and what they're experiencing does come down to like personal choice. But even bigger than that and like frustratingly in an overpowering way it's, it's these huge systemic issues that that lead to stories like mine yeah it's it's very true and you're right it is not uncommon sadly it is not uncommon i'm curious why you think that is and i'm i'm curious also I'm thinking about from social service perspective of we have social workers, we have teachers, um, maybe we have neighbors, um, friends. How can we all get better at recognizing the signs of abuse and neglect? Um, and I think the other key aspect in there is how can we support children in um, telling the truth? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if they, if they feel scared to tell the truth to an adult, or maybe they feel like there's no adult around them, how can we create a support system around them so that they can tell the truth? Something that I've been thinking of more recently is uh, just the way, the way kids act out when they're experiencing abuse, they're experiencing hunger and poverty and all of these awful things. Um, I think there's this idea that, you'll get kids who are like quiet and withdrawn and bashful and it's easy to reach out and help them. But honestly, a lot of kids get violent. They start to say really disturbing things. They act out. They have behaviors that maybe are really annoying or disturbing or off-putting. And I think if we can understand that like those are normal reactions to really stressful situations on developing brains, then we can expand our empathy and, and reach kids who are being left behind because they're not exhibiting the ideal symptoms of trauma. Um, and then I think one of the best things we can do too is to understand these, these big systemic issues that, that lead to kids having 
kinds of stories like mine. Sorry to keep using that phrase, but yeah, when you have families who are struggling to make ends meet, you have miserable children. When, you know, people can't make a living with one income, you have people who are forced to stay in abusive relationships and maybe their only option other than leaving their abuser is sleeping in a car with their kid and moving around. Um, you know, we don't have, we don't have food stamps when you take away school lunches, all of these things we think of like people should just be able to cobble together a good life for their children, no matter what, but that's impossible when we have like a broken economic system. Um, and you know, I was in in the nineties, I still had free lunch. I still, my mom got food stamps. We were really fortunate. I think kids today are seeing the results of some really selfish, larger political decisions. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> I'm feeling the heaviness of the. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's. Um, I think it's a real. I think it's an important thing to to be able to hear conversations like this, to hear stories like this, and also to be able to feel the weight of it. Mm-hmm. I think so often it's it's left intellectualized. We're like, yes, that's sad. Yes, that's unfortunate. And then we move on. So I think it's important to remember um, that it's okay to feel sad and it's okay Mm -hmm. to feel like this is heavy and, um, and also to, to learn to empathize. I mean, how else will we affect positive change if we can't have empathy? Um, And I don't mean, um, Oh, poor thing. I mean like, wow. Uh, what can I do to affect change? Yeah. Um, so I'm th- I've been also reading um, simultaneously a memoir uh, called The Many Lives of Mama Love. And I'm in this section where they're talking about, she's talking about forgiveness. And it's kind of a, it's not an uncommon story. Again, it's a story of abuse and poverty um, and the punitive system being mm-hmm. very stacked against the individual who's trying to get back on their feet. I'm at the point in this book where um, we're talking about forgiveness and we're talking about forgiveness in terms of um, forgiving oneself and forgiving maybe if it's appropriate to do so, forgiving the perpetrator or the offender. Um, And I've heard you talk a little bit in another podcast about forgiveness um, but I did want to ask here, how do you think about forgiveness, especially those are that both the abused and the victim and the offender and the abuser? Yeah. Uh, so this is a topic I love talking about because it's so complex and I don't think there's like one blanket answer. I think there are rarely blanket answers for anything, but um, yeah, I, for me personally, I didn't believe that I had to forgive in terms of absolving anyone. Um, You know, the way I found peace was by understanding. And maybe some people would define forgiveness as learning to understand people who have hurt you. Um, But yeah, I I think what makes it so complicated is that you can define forgive in a lot of different ways. Forgive can mean make peace with, it can mean absolve, it can mean understand. It's it's a really big word that means different things for different people. Um, something that I've had trouble with is the idea that 
you have to forgive as in absolve people who hurt you in, in order to heal. And I think some people find that helpful. And I also think there are a lot of people out there who have felt like they were obligated to like swallow their pain and absolve someone because they wouldn't be able to move on otherwise. And that has been really unsatisfying for them. I know people in my life who have struggled with that. And I know I've used to feel obligated and letting go of that, letting go of the idea that I had to think like that person is forgiven. Um, that was really important for me to say like, no, I'm, I'm angry and they did something wrong and maybe they learned and got better, but it's not my obligation to track down whether they did or not. My obligation is forgiving myself. I think that is important and also learning a better way. Um, so yeah, I, <laughs> I think, um, forgiveness, however you define it is important, but maybe what's more important is defining first. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I uh, just have to say that I love nuanced answers that don't have the <laughs> right or wrong or black or white. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, the, you know, one of the things that I found interesting in the book is you talk about your memories of the past being very different uh, from what your mother remembers about the past. Mm -hmm. Um and I have that, I have a similar experience with my sister and I will talk about, you know, um, childhood and I'll be like, remember, blah, blah, blah. And she has no recollection of it. I find that really interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious why you think that is, you know, why, why does that happen? What is that phenomenon about? I'm also curious if, if and how it affects your relationship with your mother in terms of the trauma that you experienced and the trauma that she experienced. These are such good questions. I'm so excited. Um, oh, yeah. I think um, I've been using this analogy a lot, so I'm kind of stuck on it right now, but our, our brains are like Plinkos and mm -hmm. you can memory in terms of memories, you can drop like the same little token. Two different people can drop the same token and end up in two different places. I think our brains are just always making associations and it's like much more out of control than we think it is. Um, like my mom and I will, we remember things very differently. My brother and I tend to have much closer, like more closely matched memories, but there are still these differences. Just like I'll remember something happening and it was a sunny day and he'll remember and it was in the middle of the night and we're talking about the same thing. And there's, I'm sure if we like spent, a bunch of time tracking it down, we could definitively say which memory is more accurate, but it's not really important. Um, I think the people latch on to different details. So like my brother and I have like this really vivid memory of like playing by this riverbed when we were kids. And he really remembers like turning the, 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 um, I don't know, the area around the river into water slides so we could slide into the river. And what I most vividly remember is that there were like these really big tadpoles. And it wasn't until we were like talking to each other about it that either of us remembered those details. Um, so yeah, I think just different things stick for different people. Um, 
And that can be really exciting sometimes. And it can be really frustrating other times, especially because like, if you remember something vividly, it feels like this has to be true or I wouldn't remember it so vividly. And then have someone say like, well, I remember it just as vividly, but entirely different. Um, it's, it's complicated. Um, and when it comes to my mom, I think, um, I think I used to get a little frustrated because I think it comes back to the idea of like wanting someone to atone, wanting to forgive them or seeking something from them to like make up for the pain. Um, and there was a time when I would like bring up stories just to see like, what did you think about this? What do you feel about it now? Do you regret it? <laughs> and, um, I really, it took me a while, but I don't feel the need to do that so much anymore. I think I found my own way to move on because I like in part, I knew I was never going to get that from her. Um, but yeah, now, um, now whenever we do talk about the past, I'm really just interested in hearing like, how do you remember it? Because once I let go of the idea that we had to remember the same things the same way, it was a lot easier to just mm. let them play out. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. That's, I, I find it can be very frustrating too. You mentioned that and um, learning to let it go and let my memory be my memory and their memory be their memory, I think would be a helpful tool. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit and start talking about writing. Um, it's definitely a big tool for you in your life, um, a, a means to process. And um, I mean, you have an MFA and you wrote a memoir. Um, and so the one thing about memoir writing that I always find interesting is it can be very intimate. I mean, it is, it's the most intimate it can get, right? In terms of writing and vulnerable. And I was curious if you were worried about writing this memoir, um, what family and or friends might think about you writing this book? Um, yeah, I was very, I don't think I was as anxious while I was writing because I told myself, like, I just need to get it out. And then when I edit, I'll go back and think more about like, um, am I being fair to this person? Is this worth sharing or am I just venting? Um, so yeah, writing it, I, it was like cathartic and just getting all the details out. And then when I went back to edit, that's when I started feeling a little more like, Ooh, I, I need to talk to this person about this and I need to like really sit with what it means to have shared this, or if this is out in the world, what, what does that mean? Um, and then I let people, or I offered to let people read um, pretty much every major character. Um, I gave them a chance and a few people were like, nah, I trust you, <laughs> um, which is stressful. Cause I'm like, I don't know, you might feel differently later. Um, and then some people read, um, my brother Ben read every draft of this book um, until the very end. And then I didn't let him read anymore until it was published, which he was infuriated by. Um, but yeah, it's, I think everyone has to find their own balance when they're publishing nonfiction between telling your own story and respecting the stories of the people you share the story with. Um, and like how much 
it depends a lot on your dynamic with the people you're writing about, but like, do you feel safe letting them read and, and asking for their feedback and, um, how much are you willing to change to protect their identity and just their endless questions to get into. Um, but I, I feel now that I'm on the other side, everything has turned out pretty well. My relationships are stable and, um, yeah. Uh, I, this, this question I think kind of straddles both the realm of writing and just general healing and transformation resilience. And I'm just curious what kind of, you know, as you were growing up, as you were moving towards breaking the generational trauma, um, and thinking about a career in writing, I'm curious about mentors you had in your life that steered you, that allowed you, I'm always curious about what allowed you to see a path separate from what you had as a child? What allowed you to dream and who in your life encouraged you to um, go get a degree if anyone did? Um, and, you know, mentors can be people that we never meet uh, and or they can be people that are very present in our lives. So uh, the first like big person I can think of in high school, I took a creative writing class with Kenneth Barrett. We called him Kenny B. And um, yeah, at the time I used to write like short stories and follow-up boy fan fiction and poems and I would keep them in these little composition notebooks. Um, and Shirley and I would like pass them back and forth and give each other feedback. But it was more of like, just a thing we did. It was just fun. And writing was the way I processed my thoughts. And Kenny B was the first person to like, take me aside and say like, Hey, I think you're talented. I think you're good at this. And I was, um, was really shocked because I didn't think of myself as being good at anything at the time. And so, um, yeah, in his class, I started writing and taking it a little more seriously. And he would give me books by like, Virginia Woolf and poets he liked. And, um, I started thinking of myself as, but kind of thinking of myself as a writer. I still wasn't quite ready to say that I was or like commit too much because it was a time when like, if you cared about anything too much, it could go away. Um, but then in college, I took some creative writing classes, including creative nonfiction with Jill Chrisman. She wrote Dark Room and she just had a book come out called um, If This Were Fiction. I would hate if I got that wrong, but um, she's a really wonderful writer and teacher. And she also took me aside after I wrote an essay about, um, I think it was about Ben's kidnapping. And she was like, Brittany, you're a writer. She said it's like a capital W. Um, and I always think of that because it was like someone I really admired giving me this affirmation about something that I was like too timid to admit that I wanted, <laughs> like I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to, someone to notice that I was like, I don't know, special or worthwhile in some way. And she did. Um, so I like, well, for that, another reason to change my major to creative writing. And then she and Kathy Day at Ball State, who was also just like so helpful for me as I was learning how to like be in the world. Um, they encouraged me to apply for grad school. And then I went to Iowa. I worked with Kiese Lehman in my first workshop, who just, I think is a genius and an incredibly like 
smart and rigorous and empathetic person who like really helped me figure out what I was trying to do and more importantly, how to start actually doing it. Um, and Anara Verzemniex also at Iowa, um, just a brilliant, insightful, warm person who helped me like not just figure out writing, but also helped me check in with myself and figure out, okay, writing is good. Writing is magical, but you also have to like take care of you as a person <laughs> as the first thing before writing. Um, so yeah, it's a very, I have a lot of people I'm really grateful for. Mm. Um, writing is good and it's healing and it helped you process. And also uh, you as a writer have to take care of yourself. Like you have to step away from the desk. You have to have practices that help you. Um, I don't know. I mean, what's the word for that? You have to have practice practices outside of writing. Um, so I was curious if you could share a little bit about your own process in terms of maybe it's self-care through the writing process or practices that or rituals that you have in your daily life that help help you be the writer that you are. Um, you know, I, I like to talk about like how this book was really cathartic and it helped me get some really loud things out of my head. Um, but it wasn't just the writing. It was like going to therapy alongside writing it and, um, you know, figuring out medications and figuring out better practices. Um, and some of those practices included like making sure that I'm doing something physical and present and being purposeful about it. Like I always try to run or go on a long walk or do some kind of workout. Um, I try to do things that are just grounding. So, you know, I try to just, if it's like doing the dishes or doing a puzzle or watering my plants, not just doing them, but also doing them purposefully, um, like being mindful about what I'm doing and thinking like, I'm here, I'm doing this thing. I'm in the present day. I'm not back in that page that I was just creating. Um, so for for me, that's really important because writing is like time traveling and you need things that bring you back. Um, but yeah, I think everyone has to find their own balance and the practice that's, that's right for them. Um, and I think something that's so important when you're figuring that out is like asking yourself a lot of questions. Like if you've been writing all day and then you sit back, like it's really tempting to be like, all right, I'm going to go eat or take a shower or watch a movie or something, but like, take a second to ask yourself, like, what am I feeling right now? And is this like, what can I do to feel better? What can I do to like treat myself or check in with myself? Like, and then try different things and figure out what works and, and then start implementing them. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. Those are some great, I love the idea of memoir writing of this nature in tandem with therapy. I think you mentioned Virginia Woolf. So I immediately thought of, okay, well, what other authors or maybe other books inspired you to become a writer or what kind of writing style did you want to emulate? Yeah. Um, every time I think or try to think of like early books I read, um, it's a little difficult because, you know, we moved around a lot. So sometimes 
I just picked up like, you know, one of those thick romance novels in someone's bathroom or a mystery off of the grocery store shelf or whatever was in the waiting room of like the doctor's office. Um, and I rarely got to finish anything as a kid and I didn't really retain like the titles or author names. So I have like a lot of stories in my head that stick out, but not, it's been a long process of like tracking them down. The first, um, series that I really got into and like thought of, or like paid attention to the name because I was obsessed, um, a series of unfortunate events. Um, yeah, I was, went to the golden corral with my grandparents and they had like a kid's raffle and I won. And at the prize table, they had a wide window, which is the second book in the series. Or no, I think it's the third. Um, and I picked it up and started reading it at the table and I didn't stop <laughs> even through the car ride. Um, and the, like, it didn't have the light. So I could only read when we were like passing a street light or something. Um, but I got so obsessed with those books in part because it's like all about like misery and suffering and hardship. And I felt like that was the only thing that like matched how I felt. Like I, you know, I liked cartoons whenever I could get to them. And I liked kids' stories and stuff like that. But it was something that felt like it was for a kid my age, but it was also like serious and had gravity. And um, Daniel Handler, whose pen named Lemony Snicket, um, like plays with language a lot. And I loved like learning a new word and then how it would come in in different ways throughout the books. Um, yeah, just... I loved that series so much. And I think, um, yeah, it taught me a lot about like what you can do with language. And even in a story that was so like bleak and so like self-aware about its bleakness, it was really funny and had these like really rich characters. And um, yeah, I, mm. <laughs> I could probably talk about a bunch of other books, but I could also talk about a series of unfortunate events like for the rest of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love the enthusiasm that's coming through. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, let's talk about other books. What's inspiring you in adulthood? What are you loving to read now? Yeah. Um, well, some of the main books I kept around while I was writing, um, Heavy by Kiese Lehman. I kept In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. I kept um, Take This Man by Brando Skyhorse. Um, Dark Room by Jill Chrisman, um, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, or Fatherless Daughters or Girls, I'm terrible with titles, uh, by Takir Madden. Um, I kept Why Does He Do That by Lundy Bancroft, um, Body Keeps the Score. There's another one, um, It Didn't Start With You. I had like a, a bunch of books about like trauma theory and psychology and neuropsychology and um but like, I also really love reading poetry. Um, like if I know I want to write something and I can't quite tap into the inspiration, um, my friend Darius Stewart is a poet. His memoir is coming out. Um, Be Not Afraid of My Body, I believe in January. Um, but he also has, um, he has like four books of poetry and I just anytime I need inspiration, I crack open one of those books. Also, poetry by Hanif Abdurraqib. 
amazing poet. Um, yeah, I read a lot of poetry, especially for inspiration. Um, and I really love nonfiction, but I, I've also been into the, um, the Indian Lake trilogy. That's my heart is a chainsaw. And, uh, I just love good horror. I love old Stephen King, even though he has his issues. Um, and I think my favorite thing that I've read recently was there, there by Tommy orange, just like blew me away. Um, yeah. So many, I need to make a list because I'm always, if I don't have like a stack of maybe four books that I need to read, I get a little bit anxious. That's yeah. how much of a reader I am. Okay. So I was curious if there was anything, you know, through the editing process, I think things get cut out of the book inevitably. And I'm curious if there was anything that you had to take out of the book that you really felt attached to, or maybe any surprises along the way through your writing process that came up for you um, that were unexpected. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if I necessarily miss it, but I had a lot of fun writing it. There was a whole section about um, my mom picked up some hitchhikers once and then we were the getaway car when they robbed a liquor store and we like ran from the cops and my mom got arrested and it was like a whole section and had a blast like retelling it. And then it was just like, basically the, the consensus was we get it. Your life was zany. This isn't really adding much except being an interesting story. So I took it out. Um, but it's a fun story to tell. Um, um, yeah, mainly just part of the reason I wrote about memory in the book was because when I was first writing it, it made me so aware of like just how unreliable memory is. Um, just, because I started the book by writing about the things that were most pressing, like things that I just couldn't let go of and was like, I was obsessing over these things and having nightmares. And, and then I was like, I need to get them on the page. So then when I started filling it out and adding things, I would look at earlier drafts and realize like, well, that couldn't have happened like that because then this happened and it wasn't like entire memories were false. It was things like, I thought this happened when I was nine. Like I remember being in like the third grade around this time. But then when I really looked back at it and compared it to what was going on at the times, like I couldn't have been older than like five. <laughs> um, so just really having to, to reckon with the fact that like, while I was writing the book, I felt like I was getting down these memories and like telling things exactly as they happened. Um, and I had to come to, yeah, come to terms with the fact that like our brains aren't archives. They're, they're weird, zany machines <laughs> where like, I think I, not to quote myself, but we're like equal parts at its mercy and in control of it. And that can be really scary. And so that was a lot to process. And I was like, well, I'll just, put this in the book. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. Memory is one of those things that for me, it's terrifying just because as I get older, I think about dementia and Alzheimer's because mm -hmm. it runs my family. Um, but even just like having a conversation, like what you described with your mom, with my sister, 
and having two different, completely different experiences, it's like, whoa, what is what is reality then if neither one of us can agree on reality? And we were both there. Yeah. So yeah, I find that wild and surprising as well. Um, so you mentioned early on in our conversation that you're working on a new project. I don't know mm-hmm. if you were mentioning this before I started to record, but I was wondering if you're at liberty <laughs> to talk about it. Yeah. What, what are you working on? Um, so my next book, I'm trying, I, it keeps changing as I work on it, but it's, I'm trying to write about like how health and mental health manifest, um, particularly when you're in like a very religious community. Um, I started out writing about stigmata and Munchausen because we're, it's factitious disorder, but commonly known as Munchausen. Um, but my mom, I believe is diagnosable as having factitious disorder and um the way that I've learned to like keep her in my life and manage talking about uh these illnesses that come up all the time is like the same way you deal with delusions which is like don't directly challenge them but don't affirm them and find a way to balance like their need for care which is why they're doing this um but then she goes to church and She'll talk about whatever the new illness is for that day. And all of these people at the church immediately affirm that behavior. They'll like pray for her and speak in tongues and like give her prayer cloths. And and so like in the face of that, it's it's kind of impossible to like make any progress and like becoming better at communicating with each other. So I'm trying to write about like how my own health and like seeking care has been complicated by growing up in that environment. And also just like the history of stigmata and how, how these kinds of delusions and behavior problems develop in religious communities. Um, but right now I'm trying to write about migraines, which I don't know if you have migraines, but when you have one, sometimes you're like, Ooh, when I get out of this, I'm going to tell everybody it's so poetic. It's terrible. And then you get out and you're like, I'm not going to write. I'm going to go on a walk. I'm going to look at the sun. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So all sorts of stuff that I haven't quite figured out how to gel into one cohesive thing yet. Oh, that's not the, all of that sounds really interesting. And I want to follow along with that journey. Um, <laughs> And so I want to just make sure that we highlight how to connect with you on the socials um, and find your website, which I took a look at before um, we started to chat, which is adorable. And um, yeah, and just again, hell, if we don't change our ways, uh, Brittany's memoir, please pick it up and support her and for all those that we know in our lives or maybe come across in our lives that we don't know who have suffered abuse and trauma. I think it's so much more than we think. So all all of that to say, Brittany, where do you like to connect with people? Where do you want people to go to find you? Um, So I have the links to all of the socials on my website. That might be the easiest way, but it's um, www.brittanymeans.com. And I know I sound like an old man saying all the W's, but I set it up wrong and now you have to use them or the website won't work. (laughs) 
Okay. Very good to note. Thank you. <laughs> I'll make sure that gets into our show notes so that people can find you. Um, last question. Is there any key takeaway either from the book or today's conversation that you really want to make sure lands with listeners? Hmm. Um, I guess if I had to have like a little sign off, just everyone take care of yourself, check in with yourself and um, be excellent to each other. <laughs> yeah, I like that. You know, uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, usually at the end of his podcast, will say, be nicer than you think you should or something like that. But that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. Is like, Let's be kind to each other. Maybe be a little bit more kind than you actually think you should be. And mm -hmm. you don't have to have a sign off, but I really, I enjoy that one. So thank you for sharing it. <laughs> Thanks, Brittany. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com. <laughs>